I had someone say to me early this morning, uh, a little earlier, that just six miles from here, the sun is just brightly shining. Not west, but six miles north, straight up, through the clouds if they parted. And so is our God. Let's pray. Father, it is really true that so often we are guided by what we sense and see and what we feel and we touch. And you gave us your son, Jesus, that we could look in his eyes and and begin to experience his life and his love flowing in through us like like living waters that um, energize our souls no matter what is going on. That you are a God who is present in our pain, in our suffering. And we invite you into this time. And I I would ask, Lord Jesus, you would take um, the words that I have prepared, the thoughts and my heart which is prepared, that you would, Holy Spirit, come and you would fill this word at any point and grab hold of a heart that's hungry for an encounter with you. God, we are here not just to hear songs and to sing and to do things that would make us be engaged or feel better or any of those things. We're really here because we want to be in relationship with you now and every moment of every day of everything you place around us in life. So, God, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got out of my car and was heading down the row of cars towards the grocery store entrance. This was a couple of years ago. I don't know if you know what that's like. You get out of your car and I'm on a mission a lot of times on goal. You know, I'm going to get those things and I'm going along and I'm walking by this SUV and out of the corner of my eye is this flash that bangs up against the rear window and and I'm jumping back, and as I'm jumping back, I hear this barking, this rabid dog with teeth, you know, flaring. And I am like, hey ready? I mean, seriously, I'm just ready to attack. The fear just came up so quickly, and I was just about ready to do it. And then out of the front door comes Pastor Paul Berggren. Um, no. No, no, that's not true. I'm in this position where fear is excited in me, and fear is a really, it's a good thing. It's a gift of God. It comes up to protect us, and, you know, sometimes you see those birds and these feathers, and they, it gets you big, and so this dog is just, I thought it was going to, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to put it down. That's how intense my reaction to that fear was. But you know what? Fear is a good thing. But if you live in fear... If you are in a place where you're constantly reacting to fear or fears that come your way, that don't do its job and move us to the place that I think God put it in us to do, it can become very dangerous. It can be very, very painful in your own life. It can actually cause your health to have problems. It can actually move in such a way that your relationships become very, very toxic in the fact that what you end up doing is you're reacting in fear to some kind of thing that happened maybe in your life where you're reacting back and forth between your spouses. You find yourself in relationship with others where you work, maybe doing the same thing because this person has power and you've never dealt with some of the stuff in your own heart. It is amazing how fear can control us and it is often 
this living in fear that moves us to a place of either anger or to resentment, all different kind of places that we may not even notice. In fact, you can ask people, are you a fearful person? And some people will be able to recognize it because it kind of bubbles up. But there's other people who live their lives and they look very powerful. You know, they're not the weak and the helpless kind of person who seems to be more a victim to all the things around them. So they're constantly living in fear. We usually think about that. But you know what? You can actually be a person quite gifted, quite talented, quite able Quite, quite wealthy and quite resourced and, and all these things. And you can be, in a sense, walled off and shut down and not even be aware that a lot of what drives you is fear. And what a lot of that fear is, it moves into anger, which moves into an energy which causes you to succeed and to do things. And so we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, and I think it's kind of interesting because we've been talking about life scripts. We saw the parables, and Jesus will give a teaching, and after the teachings, Matthew, what he does is he begins to show you responses, and these are all what I call responses that people live with. So last week, Jesus is in his hometown, and he moves to a place where he's with people, and he's just, the life script here is that God is just too familiar. And you may be a person like that. You have gotten close to God, or you grew up in the church, and and God is just way too familiar that you can't even experience him in fresh, new ways. And God comes and he encounters you in a way and you go, that doesn't fit my theology, it doesn't fit the way that I understand things. It and your mind is offended and you then, like, like they did, push him away. Now today we're looking at something different. We're looking at verses 1 through 21 of chapter 14, which is when I first was, broke this out, I broke it into two passages and then I got ill and thankfully Pastor Paul spoke for me. And, and I, in the course of the messages as we move towards Easter, I combined these two messages and I realized in doing it, you know, here's the thing. When, when you, instead of fight the circumstances that come your way, begin to say, God, how do you want me to use these things? He always shows up. He's so good and gracious. And he began, as I began to read this and I began to see it, I started to see this thread of fear that runs through Herod that you could see in Jesus and then you can see in the disciples. And so what I want you to do is to begin to think about how much of your life is lived in fear. Let me ask it another way. How much of your life is lived out of a place of profound security in the fact that God loves you and cares for you and all that happens in your life and all that is before you is guided by his hand as you walk with him in response to him. Yeah, the Apostle Paul said this, because this was the, this is really one of the chief problems of humanity. And I pray that you being rooted and established in his love may have the power, the ability to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ to know this love that surpasses all understanding and knowledge. How many of you, when you face a fearful situation that you're not able to really control, or you, you feel you are, are lacking the ability to handle or the resources for it, implicitly trust God or move from fear to trust? Knowing that God is abundant and will be present with you and give you what you need. Because Jesus actually came and said, this is the kind of life I gave you. I, I have said, says Jesus, I have come that you may live and live in abundance. Well, what's the abundance? It's not that he's going to give you all kinds of necessary material resources, but the abundance of the presence of God who is available no matter where you're at. So I ask you to ask this question to yourself and don't be looking at anyone else. 
How do you handle fear? We're going to look at three reactions. And the first is found in verses 1 and 2, where it's Herod gets a report about Jesus. And then there's an aside, verses 3 through 12. And then we find in verses 12 through about 14, somewhere in there, Jesus' report that he gets of Herod. And then after that, you see Jesus responds, and the disciples react to the crowd and to Jesus. And there's a thread of fear that runs through all this. So buckle up, get in place. We're going to kind of move along through some of this scripture study because we've got 21 verses to cover. And I know we can do it because we did it last hour. Okay? Matthew 14, verses 1 through 21. Let's read it. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, here it is, heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Interesting logic. Verse 3, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. See the fear in here? On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed, which is mean he was fearful, anxious, in a place of stress. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that a request be granted. And John, uh, and had John beheaded in, the, in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came, took his body and buried it, and they went. And they told Jesus. Verse 13, when Jesus heard again what had happened, so now the report that Jesus has, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now the disciples, as the evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, They're starting to feel a little anxious, a little fear. This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Jesus, I can hear the little, they don't have it here in Scripture, but I heard it. Um, Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. What Jesus replied, he ups the ante and just the gauge of fear goes sky high now. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, again, you read between the lines, they're looking at one another, and one of them says, We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down in the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, and they all ate, and they were satisfied. There was abundance. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So let's kind of dig into this. Herod gets a report of Jesus, verses 1 and 2. And here's the story. Herod hears about Jesus. He, is, he has put to death John the Baptist, and now he sees and hears about these miraculous powers. And in his mind, he can only conceive of some way. I don't know his, his, his understanding of reality, but somehow in his understanding, John the Baptist must be showing up somewhat in his spirit through Jesus, doing these miraculous, incredible things. That's the only way he can account for it. 
So now when you get to verses 3 and, and verses 12, you get to this, what I call an excursus or an aside. There's a reason why Matthew needs to do this. Because at this point, he has to explain why Jesus is doing what he's doing. He has to explain what happens to John the Baptist. When we were back in Matthew 11, and we were looking at the responses that we found there towards Jesus, one of the responses was the first one, when, when it says John the Baptist was in prison, and as he began to see what was happening in the ministry and life of Jesus, and he didn't see Jesus begin this political kingdom that was bringing this marching army to overcome the whole world and set things up, he began to just wonder, what is this, what's going on? Well, we come here to this point, and it explains to us what exactly happens to John the Baptist in prison. And we're told the issue. The reason John the Baptist was locked up in the first place was because he couldn't shut up. He just couldn't shut up. Everywhere John the Baptist went, he kept exposing Herod's shameless, self-serving actions, particularly one. Herod had divorced his wife, this political marriage that he had, stole his brother-in-law's wife so he could marry her, so that he and Herodias were now husband and wife. Which is an interesting thing, because, you know, sometimes you see, you know, the, a husband and wife wearing his and her shirts. You ever see those kind of things? Well, they had his and her names, Herod and Herodias. Um, little gift he gave her when he married her. Well, New Testament scholar uh, Don Carson writes, Herodias was married to Herod Philip, the half-brother to Herod Antipas. John the Baptist denounced Herod for incestuously marrying his half-brother's wife and probably kept on repeating his rebuke. In the Greek, the word lego means elegan, which is an imperfect verb, would mean this. He used to say repeatedly. Herodias was not only Herod Antipas' sister-in-law, but also his niece and the daughter of his half-brother, Erastolus. Some think Matthew's statement that Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people in verse 5, conflicts with Mark's picture of Herod, who wants to spare John, but is pushed into killing him by Herodias. That's in Mark's account. John Carson writes, the total situation, when you look at it, is psychologically convincing. He says, like Ahab in the Old Testament, Herod Antipas was, a, was both wicked and weak. And like Jezebel in the Old Testament... Herodias was both wicked and ruthless, both from a position of fear, one out of weakness, the other one out of ruthlessness of going to get what you want no matter what. And so he goes on and he says, Herod's grief, not mere distress in verse 9, shows Herod's ambivalence. Moreover, if he was really afraid of the people because they held John to be, he was afraid of the people because they held John to be a prophet. Then Matthew, if, he, if this is true, confirms the historian Josephus, another account, extra-biblical account. Matthew confirms the historian Josephus' view that Herod's actions were largely motivated by politics. That was the read on this guy. Fear drove him to do what was popular. Because he knew that if he did what was popular, there wouldn't be an uprising. And he could maintain his power. And if he could maintain his power, he could do whatever he wanted. It's the whole method that a lot of people use in life. Get people to like you so you can do what you like. And under it all is a life of fear. So in verses 6 to 8, you read, At Herod's birthday feast, Herodias' daughter, by her former marriage, Salome, 
She's a girl between 12 and 14 years of age, danced before the king and his lords. That's all in verse 6. Siloam pleased Herod Antipas enough for him to put on the airs that he was this lavish, powerful emperor, that in some way he was bigger than life. And so he said, whatever you want. And yet, Scripture paints him as a petty ruler, a man who's weak. And so with a drunken kind of sense of dignity, he goes and makes a fool of himself and promises something that he didn't really want to do. And so Salome, still young enough, 12 to 14 years old, still young enough to ask her mother's advice. She, she becomes the means of accomplishing Herodias' darkest desire, the death of a man whose offense had been telling the truth. I mean, if you keep telling the truth, you've got to shut it up or you've got to kill it. So verses 9 and 11, what you have here is this picture of, of Herod, afraid to lose face on one hand, and yet grieving, afraid on the other hand, because of the oath that he made. So he ends up having to give orders to execute John the Baptist. And as Don Carson writes, like most powerful men, many powerful men, Herod feared to be thought weak. Don't want anyone inside. And so he feels fear and shame. He covers his insecurity with this need to have power, to feel bigger than he has this fear and security that needs to be seen and to be known, to do what he wants. He's shameless. He's boundless. He doesn't care. But deep down under all of it, this very powerful man, this very powerful woman next to him, is this very weak place living in fear. They just have power, talent, resources, and all kinds of things. Now think about it for a second. After the service last Sunday, I'm handed a letter by a very successful businessman. He writes, thank you so much for your ministry and the ministry of this church. I've been trying to shake my insecurity and loneliness for many years. I've hidden it well. Part of the hiding was behind a voracious appetite and the other inside the bottle of Captain Morgan. I had made lots of money, but it was a howl victory. I worked hard, drank hard, and ate hard to erase the feelings. I was never an alcoholic. My work brought me great monetary rewards, and my drinking introduced me to a lot of friends that enjoyed drinking with me because I was paid. And I did not let anyone know. No one got inside. Walled off, shut down. No one was able to get inside to know what was going on in my life until I met Jesus. I recently met Jesus and discovered his love and life. I just say this because there are a lot of people who look really successful, and you may be one of them. You're on that track. You don't even realize sometimes, if you, if you begin to really look at it, that some of the things that put you in this place of fear, it's the very thing that motivates you to do all these things, to get to this place. And who knows, as you're on this track, that someday you might go, boy, it was a lot more howl than I ever thought. It was just masking a lot of the fear. Now, as you go on... 
you read in this in this passage of scripture that Jesus gets a report of Herod. And he has a very interesting response to it in verse 12 through about verse 14. Jesus hears now the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, you have to understand that, that Jesus admired this cousin of his. He had been in ministry before him. He had actually ushered the way. Here is John the Baptist. His heart grieved for him when he knew he was in prison. He, he made sure that John knew that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that was to come. And here Jesus hears words that John the Baptist has been executed. His head has been severed from his shoulders. What are you going to respond? I mean, you're the, you're the one who's the Messiah. You can at the fingertips go ahead and call the angels. There would be a part when you hear that, you know, your fear would move to anger and your anger would want to become big and you'd go, we're marching right in there and I'm going after this guy. Which would be a fleshly response, correct? Or he could go this way, which some people do. And that is, when that happens, you get fearful. You go, oh, God, the Father, you called me to this mission. What are you doing? The good guys are getting nailed here, and I'm, uh, and I'm now Herod's here, and I'm in his territory, and I'm, what am I going to do? And, and he could move to this place of feeling like a victim. He could move to an offending kind of role. He could move to this kind of more victim kind of role. And, and really, self-pity, folks, is it's just victim pain. You're just, oh, poor me. Or you could move to resentment which is really victim anger. And he doesn't move to those places. What I find is interesting in Jesus is it says that John, the disciples, his disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. And when Jesus heard what had happened, I believe he processed this. He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And the issue is really quite simple. In his mind, Jesus is thinking as he's been praying through this and working through this and he's seeing the opposition, because that's what's happening in these chapters now from 13 through 14, 15, 16. The opposition is growing against him. He knows it's going to grow against him because no one, not you nor me, really likes our heart to be ruled by anybody but ourselves. And so he's in this place. He knows it's growing. And he says in his own mind, he understands that fear. He goes to his Lord. And, and, and here's the great thing. Jesus was completely human. And so when he moves to that, he moves immediately to a place of trust and confidence that God, your hand is on me. You love me. You have a task for me. You've called me to do something. I am here for your purposes and, and, and for what you want to accomplish, which is true for everybody here. You've been, if you've opened your heart, you've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has a work for you to do. Every person here has a work for you to do. He knows your time. He knows when that end will be. He understands. And so here is Jesus in this place, and what he does is this. He realizes that the healthy thing to do is to actually put boundaries. In fact, he leaves the boundary of the territory of where Herod is. He goes to the northeast side where he's on the other side of the Lake Galilee, and he withdraws to get away. He protects himself. He put a boundary to put himself in a position where he's safe. Now, I just say some of you need to understand that. You may need to understand it in a, in a relationship with someone you love. You may need to understand a relationship where you're at work. You may understand it with a friend. That there are times when a person is in such a situation that you need to put up boundaries. There may be boundaries that have to be physical. There are also sometimes boundaries that is just a simple thing that says no. That behavior will stop. And that's what you see from Jesus. Jesus is the most healthy person in the whole world. And he knows how to put those, and so he puts these boundaries up, he takes care of himself, and he never puts his father to the test. He never does these things. He, he takes care of himself. There's only a few instances where we read that he doesn't. When he was hungry one time, um, it says he stayed behind at the well. Another time when he needed a break here, he, he stays and he goes away, and when he sees the crowd, compassion moves him to act. But he kept care of himself. And then the other thing you see in this process is Jesus, as he goes through it, he knows that if he's going to be good, he needs to get away. He needs to process these strong emotions of grief. 
It says that he goes away after he feeds the 5,000 that we read here. He goes into the hills to pray. He was actually going to get away that he might go to his father and begin to process all the stuff going on in his heart. Do you allow yourself to do that? Well, then you see the reactions here of the crowd and uh, the disciples to the crowd and Jesus. The story continues. Jesus sees the crowd. He pays attention to the spirit inside of him. His Holy Spirit, with His Spirit. He sees them and He feels compassion. And compassion is this emotion that moves you in the inside of your guts. You have to act when you feel compassion. Now the disciples are seeing Jesus and they're going, oh no. And they also see the crowd and they feel fear. And they're thinking, oh no, won't these people ever go away? Where can we go to leave these people behind? It's already late in the afternoon. We're in a remote place. Jesus looks at his disciples who are already feeling fear. And he ups the ante. He says, they don't need to go away. Can you imagine if you're there and he looks at you, you feed them. And they're looking at each other. There's no ones within 20 minutes are there. There's no restaurants where they can get catering. They look around and all they have is a kid's packed lunch. They have no resources. You ever been in that place in your own life? Maybe you're in that place right now where you go, God is calling you to move into something. It may take courage. It may take for you to just really say, God, I'm going to trust and have confidence that you will provide what you want in this situation. I'm just going to follow you. They're in this place where they can't do it. And that's exactly where God wants us. He wants our fear not to move us to this place of, of the hair that we do whatever we want and we're in control and we're in this better than kind of position that we feel that we are, are stronger because of who we are. Nor does he want us to go to this victim place where I can't do anything. And he wants fear to drive us to a place where we are dependent fully on him so that he can show up with his abundance in our life. And so you see this picture of them. And their response to Jesus in verse 17 is, We have only five fish loaves. And two fish. And what's really interesting is they, they missed the biggest thing in front of them. They have the presence of God in Jesus himself. He was there right before their fingertips, right in front of their eyes. Well, I want to share with you as we kind of conclude this, I want you to think about what your life script is. At what points does fear drive you? And as I said in the beginning, I think the Christian life, the life with God, is an understanding that you are so valuable in God's eyes that he would sacrifice for you himself that you might know how deeply loved you are so that you know that even your sin, even what you have done that is wrong, he will forgive and he will invite you into a life relationship with him that you will feel loved and valued, you will feel the strength of his being within you so that you can act in intentional ways through your life so that you can know his abundance, which is his presence at all times. Not material things necessarily, but his abundance and his presence. That's how he wants you to live. Now, when someone does something for you and they sacrifice greatly, you know, if they get you a gift, someone gets you a gift and you know they really sacrificed, you know, it wasn't that they, they just had all the money available, but they actually took time and they sacrificed. You feel their love, right? Because you feel valued by the amount of sacrifice given. God cannot make it any clearer to you or to me that there is 
a sacrifice that he has made that is the greatest thing he could ever do, and that is that he gave himself completely on a cross, and through that cross, through this death and life of Jesus, he says to you, I want you to live always understanding that you are loved and valued. Now, I was with this lady, her name's Pia Melody, and she gave this chart. It was really helpful for me, so I'm going to give it to you, and I hope it will be helpful for you. It's just a simple thing that when you live in the Spirit and in trust, and you understand how much God loves you, and you've opened your heart and you invited Him in, you recognize your need of Him, you recognize that you are a sinner, that you need His grace to to, um, experience His fullness and His love. You feel loved and valued. That loved and valued sense gives you His power. It's that, it's that sense when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's your power, all that He's created you to be with Him, that moves you to a place of abundance. It's not abundance in yourself alone or in someone else. It's an abundance with the presence of God operating in your life for every circumstance that you face. Now, here's what happens for most people. It happens in my life. It happens when you're even really young. You set these life scripts of fear and other things when you're young. What happens is, instead of feeling loved and valued, you feel less than. You feel weak. You feel under-resourced. You feel all these different things. You feel judged. You feel shame. Whatever it may be. And that moves you to a place, usually, where you feel helpless. And when you feel helpless, you feel that you have nothing. You can do nothing. You then move to a place where you can be hopeless. That's not the life that God called us to live. And through that, people can feel discouragement. They can live in self-pity. They can live in jealousy. They can live in places of, of despair and depression. What God wants us to do, all is to know, is that he loved us so much that he actually gives himself on a daily basis that we can walk in the encounter of his very presence. So that we know that we're loved and valued, we can live at that level. But what often happens is if you feel less than or weak, in order to feel loved and valued, you move to a place where you have to feel better than or strong. You move to a place, it's very easy to move to a place where you begin to look at your resources, your strength, and you do the things that you can do because in your heart you need to move to another place which is called control. You need to control, to manipulate, to use what you've got to get to your ends, and your end often is to a place of what I call self-abundance. It's not the kind of abundance that is in God, it's the abundance that is in yourself. And when you run out of yourself, you go through those kind of loops again. And that's, I believe, where a lot of people live. Christians um, who come to know Christ live in this continual fear, flesh, better than, less than kind of position. God calls us to live. Jesus is seeking to let us know throughout his word the response he wants us to live in is the fact that you are loved. I am loved. And because of that love, we now operate out of his love towards others. He has given us the strength through anything that we face in life to move to a place where we live always in abundance, not our self-abundance, but in the abundance that is in the presence of God. That even miracles of feeding 5,000 can happen if that's what God desires. Amen? That's the truth. So when God says to us, little us, I want you to reach this community, I want you to reach this city, I want you to reach this state, I want you to reach the world, we could feel like the disciples that look out at the 5,000 men, that's just men, not women and children, and go, there's no way. And he says, it's not about you. It's just about your heart being in a place where I can love you and you can move into my power and strength and you will live always in the abundance that I will meet whatever need is before you. You can live with what we're going to sing here in a moment. It is well. No matter where you're at today, it is well and can be well. 
with your soul because of this God who is in relationship with those he's created who respond to his presence. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever end it is, he's present for you. Let's, let's um, I'm asked the team if they'd come in and we'll sing this song, It Is Well Together. I'm going to ask if you would stand and, uh, and, and approach this with an attitude of prayer, if you would. Thank mm-hmm. you.